Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ed Robertson, welcome you to this week's edition of TV Confidential Radio Talk Show about television that will welcome Shelley Clark later on this hour. Shelley Clark, one of the founding members of Honeycomb, the legendary R&B and soul girl group from the late 60s and early 1970s that not only topped the Billboard charts with such hits as Want Ads and Stick Up, but ushered in a whole new era of songs for girl groups and solo female music artists with lyrics that had strong messages of female empowerment. Calendar year 2023 marks the 55th anniversary of the founding of Honeycomb. With that in mind, Shelly's getting ready for a big anniversary tour that we'll tell you more about when Shelly Clark joins us later on in this hour. We hope you stay tuned for that coming up in our second hour. We will welcome back our friend John Burlingame, John Burlingame, music journalist and the nation's leading writer on the subject of music for films and television. John's latest book, Music for Primetime, is a history of American television themes and scoring that not only tells the backstory of every great TV theme song or TV theme music since the very beginning of television, but introduces you to the many great composers behind all of our favorite TV themes, while also examining the many neglected and frequently underrated orchestral and jazz compositions for television that date back to the late 1940s. John Burlingame will join us in our second hour. We hope you stay tuned for that as well. In the meantime, Greg Airbar is with us as we begin this hour by playing part two of our conversation that began on our last program with Nick Santa Maria. Nick Santa Maria, actor, singer, playwright, comedian, comedy historian, and if you're a fan of Biffle and Schuster, the co-star, along with Will Ryan, of The Misadventures of Biffle and Schuster. Nick is with us today via Zoom. Like many of us, Nick grew up watching the films of Abbott and Costello on local television every Saturday and Sunday. Unlike many of us, Nick knew when he was five years old that he wanted to be a comedian, drawing inspiration from none other than Lou Costello. Nick is also the co-author, along with Matthew Conium of the annotated Abbott and Costello, a complete viewer's guide to the comedy team and their 38 films, the ultimate companion to Abbott and Costello that also makes the case for why Abbott and Costello rightfully belong among the top tier of comedy teams. The annotated Abbott and Costello available wherever books are sold from our friends at McFarland and Company, mcfarlandpub.com as well as 
Amazon.com. You might recall that at the end of our last program, Nick Gregg and I were talking about how the widespread popularity of Abbott and Costello in the 1940s almost worked against them because of oversaturation. We were about to expand on that point when we ran out of time as we pick up the conversation. They couldn't get enough of them. And unfortunately, it worked against them in the in the end. They were saved by Abbott and Costello v. Frankenstein, but uh, the audience was getting a little tired of them. They they were on radio, they were making four movies a year, uh, they were doing personal appearances. I mean, they were everywhere, and they were reissuing the older movies. So everywhere you looked was Abbott and Costello. But you know who liked that? Who liked that idea? Charles Lawton. Probably the greatest, to me, greatest actor who ever lived, loved Abbott and Costello. He said in an interview that he was a de- he, he was a depressive. He had trouble with depression. Yeah. And when he would get depressed, whatever city he was in, he would look. He would take open up the newspaper and see where the closest Abbott and Costello movie was playing, and then he would go see it and feel better. That's the perfect antidote for anyone who says Abbott and Costello is artist question mark. I'm not a film scholar, but I know enough about Charles Lawton. He's considered a very highbrow, a very actor's actor, and a very an actor who put a lot of thought into his performance. And as he taught actors about the process, the fact that he was drawn to Abbott and Costello, he saw the artistry in them because he knew he he recognized the healing nature of laughter. He talked about that uh, quite a bit. Uh, especially when making the film, Abbott and Costello me Captain Kidd, which is one of my favorites because he's in it, because he's having the time of his life. Yeah, but he, he talks about it. He's, he's saying these guys aren't just, they're not just clowns. These guys are artists. These guys are, are, are uh, well-versed in making an audience feel good. And what more do you want? And what then things uh, that are in your book where you explain who people are and stuff, and it's like if people love the television show, well, you've got cast members who ended up in a television show or you were in a television show in uh, Gabin and Costello, Meet Captain Kid. And then mm-hmm. you, you've also, what I found fascinating, because I hadn't seen it in a while, is I forgot that Bill Shirley plays the, the uh, young lead. And Bill Shirley was the singing voice of uh, Prince Philip in Sleeping Beauty and for Jeremy Brett in My Fair Lady. So if you're a My Disney fan, you want to see what Bill Shirley looks like. He's got this major role in the movie. Mm-hmm. And I think he's pretty good, you know? Mm-hmm. I think he's pretty good. He, he, he certainly looks like he's having fun, you know? Uh, but And I tell you, some of the songs in Captain Kid I really like. I love the pirate songs, you know, walking down the street. Tonight we sail. And then they always give Bud these horrible dubbed voices that sound nothing like him. And I just, I have this image in my head of them giggling as they're doing it, you know? nobody's going to believe this. <laughs> well, and, and but, but, but going yeah. back to uh, the last time you visited, uh, Lou could carry a tune. Yeah. Oh, Lou could sing. Yeah. Lou could sing. Uh, there's a scene in uh, Dance With Me, Henry, their last film together, which is much better than people think, by the way. Uh, at, at the beginning, or towards the beginning, Gigi Perot, you know, you know that actress? Yes, yes, yes. She... Uh, she um, She's singing opera, and she's hanging up the clothing in the backyard. She's singing from La Traviata, 
and Lou hears it, and he jumps over the fence, and he joins her. She, he moves one of the um, uh, clothing pieces over, and here he is, almost like he opened a curtain, and the two of them sing the song together. He's singing a counter melody to him, to her, and it's my favorite part of the film. Whenever Lou shows his versatility, which he has in spades, that's what I like the most. When he does his little vaudeville dance in uh, on the Colgate Comedy Hour, the Christmas episode, it's it's delightful. You know, he learned it in burlesque and he did it. He was a song. He was he was often, often thought of as a song and dance man in burlesque. So he had it. He had the gifts. Like I say all the time, he had whatever gifts a comic has. He had them, and Chaplin knew it too. Chaplin called him the best there was, the Cha- best working. Chaplin. Com- Chaplin was Lou's idol, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. He saw shoulder arms 11 times or 18 times, something like that, when he was a kid. And, uh, yeah, they, they, Lou got to meet him and hang out with him. And told uh, Chaplin just told him he was the best working, and they discussed making a remake of The Kid with Lou. Another interesting point that you make in the annotated Abbott and Costello, Nick, is that this kind of dovetails on what we've been talking about, about Lou's versatility. And Lou... Lou... Um, if he wanted to, and had he lived after the team formally broke up, had he lived, probably would have had a successful career um, either as a leading actor or or as a dramatic actor in movies and in television. And I think this is in your introduction, Nick. You talk, you you kind of do a compare contrast to say um, Stan Laurel. As brilliant as he was as part of Laurel and Hardy, he needed Hardy in order to be funny or be successful, whereas Costello was talented enough in his own right that he probably would have been a successful star had he lived after the act broke up. I agree, and here's the reasoning. Stan, I love Stan. Stan makes me cry. I laugh so hard. But he's not particularly human. If you know what I mean, yeah. I always think of Stan as some, from outer space, from some <laughs> other planet, and poor Ollie has to figure him out and explain him to other people, you know. And he always suffers for it. But uh, Stan, uh, although he does a wonderful job as Lord Lord Paddington in Chump at Oxford, mm-hmm. uh, it really was his only veering away from that one character, and the characters he played in his silent films were so obnoxious. It just killed the comedy, basically. And he he would have been the first one to tell you that he was not a good solo comic. He was giving up at the time. Leo McCary uh, teamed uh, Ollie with Stan. And thank God that Ollie came along because that's what he needed. He needed Ollie to set the tempo and he needed a great foil. And Ollie was exactly that. But can you picture Stan playing a lead role in a movie other than maybe being there? (laughs) right yeah yeah i can't yeah he's not he's not a leading comedian he's part of he's part of a great team i think ollie could have yeah ollie would have had a great career as a comedy character actor he would have been wonderful if i remember correctly um ollie had a fairly successful career before he met stan i think he was in some of the vitagraph he was in with Larry Seaman, with Larry Seaman, who was a very popular comedian yeah. at the time. Can't understand it now, but he was very popular then. <laughs> and Ollie was a very sought-after number one villain, yeah, a comic villain. 
but also a comic character actor. Once he went to Hal Roach in 1926, I believe it was, he became a all-purpose, you know, uh, supporting comic, working with Charlie Chase and Mabel Norman and even Stan Laurel. Uh, Stan was ready to pack it in and be a writer-director, gagman director. And then Ollie happened, and the rest is history. So my point is, I think that Bud could have been a fine character actor. I think he would have been fine in roles played by, and get your Google out, everybody, people like Richard Lane, Russell Simpson, uh, fast-talking con men. He he was great at that. And in fact, in some of the movies, he was just a flat-out villain. He was like the villain of the piece. So uh, he didn't mind playing those kind of roles. But Lou, Lou was a star comic. Lou could have gone on. In fact, one indication of where he might have gone was the fact that he was being considered, uh, at the time of his death, he was considered for uh, Paul Douglas's role in uh, the Debbie Reynolds, Tony Randall comedy, The Mating Game. And they were considering Lou for it, uh, playing Debbie Reynolds' father. And I think he would have been just great. And that's where he was heading. He was heading towards those kind of roles. And I also think if you watch The 30-Foot Bride of Candy Rock, which I just watched uh, about a week ago, it's a sitcom. Yeah. He would have been great in a sitcom. He also worked very well with Gail Gordon. And the two of them could have had a sitcom. You know, you know the Luke Costello show with, with Gail Gordon. You know, the 30-foot Bride of Candy Rock was also the closest thing to a, to a Disney 50s and 60s comedy. And yes. you could have seen him playing in Son of Flubber or oh. in Love Bug. It's, you know, if he was around long, they would have, if he, that would not be out of the question for him. To be oh, no, time. without a doubt. That's a, that's, a, that's a very astute observation because I didn't even think about that. He would have been perfect. And he loved the Disney product. By the way, he was a Disney fan. Nick Santamaria is the co-author, along with Matthew Conium, of the annotated Abbott and Costello, a complete viewer's guide to the comedy team and their 38 films, the ultimate companion to Abbott and Costello that also makes the case for why Abbott and Costello rightfully belong among the top tier of comedy teams. The annotated Abbott and Costello available wherever books are sold from our friends at McFarland and Company, McFarlandPub.com, as well as Amazon.com. By the way, the annotated Abbott and Costello by Nick Santa Maria and Matthew Conium is one of many reference books on Bud Abbott and Lou Costello that are part of the new exhibit dedicated to Abbott and Costello that is currently displayed at the Hollywood Museum, the HollywoodMuseum.com. Stay with us, folks. We'll be right back. We are the real Brady Brady Bros. Brady Brothers from the TV show Brady Bunch. I'm Barry Williams. And I'm Christopher Knight. I played Greg. And uh, who were you again? I played Peter. We've decided that we're going to do a podcast around episodes of the Brady Bunch. We're going to use it as a prism to look back to our experience doing the show and why the Brady Bunch is still popular. Have a sunshine day. We are the real Brady Brady Bros. Greg? Well, I wanted to bring up the the point that the book also does, and that is... And this is also because it, it being in print and ebook is makes it important. There are other books and especially information on the internet. Not that all internet information is wrong. I write some, but 
when you see comments said, uh, I heard or I read somewhere, and they're wrong about public figures especially, it's it kind of that's kind of why we, we write these kind of books is to, to either set the record straight or give people credit where they deserve it or, or clarify what has been consolidated into 40 words uh, because it requires more explanation. And one of the things that this book does again and again is refute with facts some of the misconceptions about what the team was like and especially the way Lou Costello behaved and things he said. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was important to me to get to get across. I'm I'm friendly with Chris Costello. I've worked with both Chris and her sister Patty on uh, the video release of the television show. I was there to, to fact check their interview, and then went to lunch with Patty and got uh, got a, a, a boatload of information about Lou. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was like salivating, yeah. but um, so anyway, so I know the family. And I had to be very, very careful about that last chapter about Lou because it brings up some stuff that wasn't always positive, that wasn't always that it didn't always look good. And we all have that. I mean, I, I don't know anybody who doesn't have uh, some skeletons in his closet or who isn't human, really, just uh, boiling it down to that. And I just hope. And I hope if they're listening to this now, I hope you realize that I tried to be as fair as I could be. I loved your father uh, as much as a non-family member could because he was my ultimate inspiration. And I would never want to hurt you or them. Uh, I just want to get that out there. Uh, but I've heard from most people. Some people have told me it's their favorite chapter in the book. Other people have told me that they totally get it and that I, I handled it very uh, fairly um, and made him look like a human being, basically. So I hope that that comes across in that last chapter. I would say it does, having read Lou and Me, which is the chapter you're specifically talking about, uh, Nick. The other thing you point out, and again, this is the beauty of reading a book like the annotated Abbott and Costello at a time when you can, uh, when, when, when many of their film, films are now available on Blu-ray, and in some cases, if the release includes extra features such as the outtakes, and this is something you talk about in many of your commentaries, the myth that they didn't always get along. And there were moments in, you know, look, you've had a number of professional performing partners. I've had performing partners. There are times when you don't get along, but you work through it. And you, um, to, to quote from Monty Hall, for you, the proof is in the pudding because the outtakes show that even when they were supposedly not getting along on this film or that film, the outtakes show they were having fun with each other and the cast members. Yeah, that's that's good that you brought that up because there's a famous incident, uh, uh, famous amongst Abbott and Costello aficionados, that uh, um, they went went for a full year without speaking to each other except on stage, because Lou caught one of his maids trying to almost unionize the other workers in his house, so he fired her. She went to Bud for sympathy, and Bud hired her. Now. You could take whatever side you want, you know, hearing the hearing the facts, but it caused an incredible rift. Lou said, what are you doing? Fire her. She, she was, you know, blah, blah, blah. This makes me look bad. Anyway, it caused a rift. 
and I'm still not sure when it exactly when it happened. I know there were newspaper accounts of it and all this stuff, but there are outtakes available to us fans. Most of them are on YouTube, and they speak volumes. I, you have to understand that uh, in this book, you're almost getting two books because you're getting Matthew's take on things and the way he looks at things, which is very fascinating and very uh, fact-based, uh, based going back to newspapers and all those kinds of things, all the things a good biographer should do. I don't. Um, <laughs> well, you, 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 appro you approach it from a performer's point of view. A performer's standpoint. Yeah. I, I do mention facts. I talk about the actors. I talk about the production. I do all those things. But right, because you do teach comedy history, so you're not, I, you're, you're not exactly fact immune. You know? right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, thank you, Ed. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I do. But you know, it's it's. I think next year, March thirty first, my birthday mm -hmm. is going to be fifty years that I did my first paid comedy performance. Wow. That's 50 years. Wow. And I take those 50 years and I take them very seriously because most of them were about comedy. And I consider myself an expert, mm -hmm. not only in performing, but in looking and, and critiquing and all of those things. I say in my introduction that I could look at the boys working, the boys, Abbott and Costello, I could look at them working. I could look at their eyes and I can tell you what they're thinking at that moment, or I could tell you whether they're connected at that moment. And that's what fascinates me more than anything. Because and these because it's right out there in the open. It's right there in the open for us to look at. Right, because yeah. you you know what it's like to be on the stage in the moment. You know where working it's just, with someone you're close with. Yeah. yeah, and if the audience is not responding, you either whether you're working by yourself or you with your acting partner or you and Will Ryan have to figure out how to navigate this moment to get from A to B and generate the response you want to get or you're hoping to get, which is a laugh or some sort of audience reaction. I mean, you want well, to- you just you, broke you, it. You broke it down like Einstein. You just, you just uh, put it down as a theorem. Uh, <laughs> but it's right, you're right. Uh, that's basically what you do. Nick Santa Maria is the co-author, along with Matthew Conium, of the annotated Abbott and Costello Complete Viewer's Guide to the Comedy Team and their 38 films. Greg Garibar is with us. We hope you'll stay with us. We continue our conversation about Abbott and Costello here on TV Confidential. Be part of our conversation. If you like what you hear, have thoughts on this week's program, or have an idea for a future edition of TV Confidential, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at talk tvconfidential.net talk at tvconfidential.net you can also message us at facebook.com forward slash tvconfidential x.com forward slash tvconfidential or at tvconfidential on instagram and if you're listening to us on the tv confidential podcast please be sure to hit the subscribe button this portion of TV Confidential is brought to us by our friends at Front Porch Realty, the community of realtors in the Northern Bay Area of California that is committed to finding the solution that is best for their clients. Whether you're a first-time home buyer or looking to sell or lease your property in Northern California, call Karen Strain at 415-886-7411 or visit frontporchrealtygroup.com for more information on how they can help you.